Section fifty seven of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter eighty eight. London, November third, Old Style, seventeen forty nine. Dear boy, from the time that you have had life, it has been the principal and favorite object of mine to make you as perfect as the imperfections of human nature will allow. In this view, I have grudged no pains nor expense in your education. Convinced that education, more than nature, is the cause of that great difference which you see in the characters of men. While you were a child, I endeavored to form your heart habitually to virtue and honor, before your understanding was capable of showing you their beauty and utility. Those principles, which you then got, like your grammar rules, only by rote, are now, I am persuaded, fixed and confirmed by reason. And, indeed, they are so plain and clear, that they require but a very moderate degree of understanding, either to comprehend or practice them. Lord Shaftesbury says, very prettily, that he would be virtuous for his own sake, though nobody were to know it, as he would be clean for his own sake, though nobody were to see him. I have therefore, since you have had the use of your reason, never written to you upon those subjects. They speak best for themselves, and I should now just as soon think of warning you gravely not to fall into the dirt or the fire, as to dishonour or vice." This view of mine I consider as fully attained. My next object was sound and useful learning. My own care first, Mr. Hart's afterward, and of late, I will own it to your praise, your own application, have more than answered my expectations in that particular, and, I have reason to believe, will answer even my wishes. All that remains for me, then, to wish, to recommend, to inculcate, to order, and to insist upon, is good breeding without which all your other qualifications will be lame, unadorned, and to a certain degree unavailing. And here, I fear, and have too much reason to believe, that you are greatly deficient. The remainder of this letter, therefore, shall be, and it will not be the last by a great many, upon that subject. A friend of yours and mine has very justly defined good breeding to be, the result of much good sense, some good nature, and a little self-denial for the sake of others, and with a view to obtain the same indulgence from them. Taking this for granted, as I think it cannot be disputed, it is astonishing to me that anybody who has good sense and good nature, and I believe you have both, can essentially fail in good breeding. As to the modes of it, indeed, they vary according to persons, and places, and circumstances, and are only to be acquired by observation and experience. But the substance of it is everywhere and eternally the same. Good manners are, to particular societies, what good morals are to society in general, their cement and their security. And, as laws are enacted to enforce good morals, or at least to prevent the ill effects of bad ones, so there are certain rules of civility, universally implied and received, to enforce good manners and punish bad ones. And, indeed, there seems to me to be less difference, both between the crimes and between the punishments, than at first one would imagine. The immoral man, who invades another man's property, is justly hanged for it, and the ill-bred man, who by his ill manners invades and disturbs the quiet and comforts of private life, is by common consent as justly banished from society. Mutual complacences, attentions, and sacrifices of little conveniences are as natural an implied compact between civilized people as protection and obedience are between kings and subjects whoever in either case violates that compact, 
justly forfeits all advantages arising from it. For my own part, I really think, that next to the consciousness of doing a good action, that of doing a civil one is the most pleasing, and the epithet which I should covet the most, next to that of Aristides, would be that of well-bred. This much for good breeding in general, I will now consider some of the various modes and degrees of it. Very few, scarcely any, are wanting in the respect which they should show to those whom they acknowledge to be infinitely their superiors, such as crowned heads, princes, and public persons of distinguished and eminent posts. It is the manner of showing that respect which is different. The man of fashion and of the world expresses it in its fullest extent, but naturally, easily, and without concern, whereas a man who is not used to keep good company expresses it awkwardly, one sees that he is not used to it, and that it costs him a great deal. But I never saw the worst-bred man living, guilty of lolling, whistling, scratching his head, and such like indecencies, in company that he respected. In such companies, therefore, the only point to be attended is to show that respect, which everybody means to show, in an easy, unembarrassed, and graceful manner. This is what observation and experience must teach you. In mixed companies, whoever is admitted to make a part of them, is, for the time at least, supposed to be upon a footing of equality with the rest, and consequently, as there is no one principal object of awe and respect, people are apt to take a greater latitude in their behaviour, and to be less upon their guard, and so they may, provided it be within certain bounds, which are upon no occasion to be transgressed. But, upon these occasions, though no one is entitled to distinguish marks of respect, Every one claims, and very justly, every mark of civility and good breeding. Ease is allowed, but carelessness and negligence are strictly forbidden. If a man accosts you, and talks to you ever so dully or frivolously, it is worse than rudeness. It is brutality to show him, by a manifest inattention to what he says, that you think him a fool or a blockhead, and not worth hearing. It is much more so with regard to women, who, of whatever rank they are, are entitled, in consideration of their sex, not only to an attentive, but an officious good breeding from men. Their little wants, likings, dislikes, preferences, antipathies, fancies, whims, and even impertinencies, must be officiously attended to, flattered, and, if possible, guessed at and anticipated by a well-bred man. You must never usurp yourself to those conveniences and agreements which are of common right, such as the best places, the best dishes, etc., but on the contrary, always decline them yourself, and offer them to others, who in their turns will offer them to you, so that upon the whole you will in your turn enjoy your share of the common right. It would be endless for me to enumerate all the particular instances in which a well-bred man shows his good breeding and good company, and it would be injurious to you to suppose that your own good sense will not point them out to you, and then your own good nature will recommend, and your self-interest enforce the practice. There is a third sort of good breeding, in which people are the most apt to fail, from a very mistaken notion that they cannot fail at all. I mean with regard to one's most familiar friends and acquaintances, or those who really are our inferiors, and there, undoubtedly, a greater degree of ease is not only allowed, but proper, and contributes much to the comforts of a private social life but that ease and freedom have their bounds too, which must by no means be violated. A certain degree of negligence and carelessness becomes injurious and insulting from the real or supposed inferiority of the persons, 
and that delightful liberty of conversation among a few friends is soon destroyed, as liberty often has been, by being carried to licentiousness. But example explains things best, and I will put a pretty strong case. Suppose you and me alone together. I believe you will allow that I have as good a right to unlimited freedom in your company, as either you or I can possibly have in any other, and I am apt to believe, too, that you would indulge me in that freedom as far as anybody would. But notwithstanding this, do you imagine that I should think there were no bounds to that freedom? I assure you I should not think so, and I take myself to be as much tied down by a certain degree of good manners to you as by other degrees of them to other people. Were I to show you, by a manifest inattention to what you said to me, that I was thinking of something else the whole time, were I to yawn extremely, snore, or break wind in your company, I should think that I behaved myself to you like a beast, and should not expect that you would care to frequent me. No, the most familiar and intimate habitudes, connections, and friendships, require a degree of good breeding, both to preserve and cement them. If ever a man and his wife, or a man and his mistress, who pass nights as well as days together, absolutely lay aside all good breeding, their intimacy will soon degenerate into a coarse familiarity, infallibly productive of contempt or disgust. The best of us have our bad sides, and it is as imprudent as it is ill-bred to exhibit them. I shall certainly not use ceremony with you. It would be misplaced between us. But I shall certainly observe that degree of good breeding with you, which is, in the first place, decent, and which I am sure is absolutely necessary to make us like one another's company long. I will say no more now upon this important subject of good breeding, upon which I have already dwelt too long, it may be, for one letter, and upon which I shall frequently refresh your memory hereafter, but I will conclude with these axioms. That the deepest learning without good breeding is unwelcome and tiresome pedantry, and of use nowhere but a man's own closet, and consequently of little or no use at all that a man who is not perfectly well-bred is unfit for good company and unwelcome in it, will consequently dislike it soon, and afterward renounce it, and be reduced to solitude, or, what is worse, low and bad company. That a man who is not well-bred is full as unfit for business as for company. Make then, my dear child, I conjure you, good breeding the great object of your thoughts and actions, at least half the day." Observe carefully the behaviours and manners of those who are distinguished by their good breeding. Imitate, nay, endeavour to excel, that you may at least reach them, and be convinced that good breeding is, to all worldly qualifications, what charity is to all Christian virtues. Observe how it adorns merit, and how often it covers the want of it. May you wear it to adorn, and not to cover you. Adieu. End of section 57. Read by Professor Heather and by. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.